As we have so beautifully sung, lifted our voices together in song and have praised God and been so ever thankful for the great blessings he has showered upon us today, we have the opportunity also again to open a portion of his word and to allow that perhaps to touch our lives, to encourage us to better understand some of the things he has revealed within it. And over the next few moments tonight, I would ask you to consider a lesson that I've entitled The Bible and Science, Part 1. Of course, the title would seem to suggest that there may be other lessons to come in the series. And in fact, that's my hope and plan at this point. But all along the way, this opening lesson is entirely vital, for it will be a guiding thought for us throughout the entirety of that series of lessons. As we come to consider science on the one hand and the Bible on the other, I suspect none of us need to be reminded that there is a rather strong and raging debate that's ongoing in our society as it touches both of these realities. In the way that one approaches that discussion and that debate will have a great deal of bearing upon the understanding that one takes away from it and whether or not one would allow oneself to be persecuted sufficiently by those of the scientific framework only. I would hope in this series of lessons, and might I also say, this is not a science lecture and it's not my intent to make it one. Our idea will be to observe the fact that there is a rather impressive amount of scientific truth in the Bible itself. And I know that for myself that's been a very fruitful kind of appreciation that scientists and their discoveries, perhaps recently, are only rediscovering and coming to realize what God has inserted in his word millennia ago. If only we had been more astute readers of the scriptures, perhaps that could have been discovered a long time before. But as we look at various aspects throughout the series, it's entirely fair to begin it with the words of some of these introductory thoughts. We understand how blessed we are to have such sufficient technology about us, the comforts of society that we enjoy, such as the comforts of a nice place like this to gather for assembly, the comforts that we enjoy in our home, and many of them have been prompted by the discoveries of science, the conveniences in, in life that those discoveries have made available. It's certainly fair to say that our youngsters in school are encouraged to major in a rather significant way in the learning of science and engineering and mathematics. And the sad tragedy is so often those who are their teachers are schooled and mastered in the sciences and are bereft of the knowledge of the Word of God. Those children are often thus placed in positions, especially at the university level, where they are often belittled and insulted and persecuted if they ever see a problem with faith on the one hand versus what they're taught on the other in science. It would be my hope throughout this brief series of studies to alleviate some of those potential debates and to appreciate more thoroughly and fully the nature of some amazing science facts that are embedded in the Holy Scriptures. And remember, this book, the very last one of it, was written still roughly some 1900 years ago. That kind of thought leads me to ask you to notice a couple of other thoughts out of an introductory nature, and then we'll move on to the first part of our study tonight. The impressiveness with which one is able to consider science is an impressiveness that, albeit, is often lifted up high in our society. Quite often the view of a scientist is this person in a, lab, in a white lab coat who is strictly in pursuit of truth, 
who does never allow presuppositions or bias to cloud the conclusions of the data. All too often, however, I would strongly urge you that ideal is not reality. Scientists, just like any other person, they have presuppositions. There is a belief system that guides their thinking. There is, in fact, a whole set of biases and prejudices from which they, by way of background, have come. And quite often, they approach data with their eyes closed to the truth of it, but opened with regard to those presuppositions. Now, I say that. Ever, I hope not in a way that's a new matter to any of us, but just as a matter of the facts of the case. In the study that we shall begin tonight, it is not at all surprising that much of what some in science teach is directly opposed to what this book contains. There is no way to hold both books and to claim that both of them can be accepted as factually true. In fact, uh, for a series of phrases that might be employed is mutually exclusive. If two books present things that are mutually exclusive, that means one of them is right and the other is wrong, or both of them are wrong. It is impossible, absolutely impossible for both to be right if what they say is mutually exclusive. Throughout this series of studies, again, we will more often than not open the scriptures and notice the impressiveness of the science in it. And from time to time, we'll note the contrast of that to what scientists may from time to time say. As we look at those matters, let's divide the lesson tonight into three parts. Let's look first of all at the Bible. That was the first element in the title. Then we'll look more interestingly at science. And then we'll see if we can harmonize the two. As we strive to do that, let's begin with an appreciation of the Bible first. It will not be at all a shocking thing that there are various views in our world to the Holy Bible. There are some, in fact, who approach the Bible and say it is nothing more than a collection of stories, myths, and fables from ancient times. In that sense, what is in it can have some historical truth to it, but it's colored and exaggerated by the desire of those who shared and wrote down the story. It was intended to make a point, cultural perhaps and no more. In that sense, if the Bible is seen only as a collection of stories and myths and fables, perhaps no better than Aesop's fables, or no better than Grimm's fairy tales or some such thing, well, it's not at all surprising that they would not approach the Holy Scriptures in the same way that you and I would. When they read a passage or a text, even if it had scientific overtones, they would have precious little regard for it, and in fact often would completely acclaim it to be that which is worthy of being ignored. Might it be noted in regard to that thought that some of those who <coughs> are the media moguls of our land actually fall in that category? You may have seen some years ago that one of the most notable figures of the ABC Broadcasting Network was in fact a person who made a statement almost identical to that. When an individual rolled in and questioned this person about one of the television programs that was airing on ABC, it was a popular program, but it was one which directly encouraged a lifestyle opposed to the truth of God's Word. A person from ABC actually took the time to respond, but here's what the person said. Get your nose out of the Bible. It's nothing but an antique collection of fables and stories and myths. Live by something modern. 
That's what ABC said. And to think that we welcome programs from ABC, CBS, Fox, NBC, and a whole host of others into our homes, and we do so with open arms in many instances. It's no wonder that the shows so often they're broadcast have no regard for the Word of God. How often in some of the most popular shows of television do we ever see church? Do we ever see anybody even make reference to the Bible? Do we ever see a kind of holistic and godly lifestyle that's actually encouraged and not belittled and made fun of? Perhaps we can see why, for they have no respect for the Bible. They, even by their own words, admit such. But on the far other extreme are those who look upon this book as the actual, infallible, truthful Word of God. It's no story, it is no myth, and it certainly is no fable. It is a true collection of what God has given by to the human family to be recorded and written, and it is that which can be relied upon in every acid and in every aspect and facet of life, and to be encouraged to be appreciated as the one and only pathway through life that leads to eternal life. As you might anticipate, you and I would fall under that category appreciating that there's no errors, no mistakes, no discrepancies. It is, in truth, what it proclaims itself to be. That kind of idea leads us to see those two extremes, and we may well appreciate that there are many folks somewhere in between. They may see some truth in the Bible and may grasp wholly on to that, but other parts they may choose perhaps to ignore due to the pressures of science, the pressures of others. It is interesting that we shall find in this series of lessons, as we have in, from other perspectives in the past, the Bible is not a take part of it and leave it. One either takes all of it or one takes none of it. God did not construct His Word, did He, to be piecemeal accepted, to be taken in a piece whereas to ignore and to completely rebel against other aspects of it. I thought it would be wise for us at the outset of this series of lessons to spend a moment and at least recall what does the Bible claim for itself. Now, this is not, of course, just a person's viewpoint toward the Scriptures. What does the Bible claim for itself? As you can see from several passages that I have chosen to list, the Bible on many occasions claims itself to be that in that second category we had discussed, the absolute, infallible, presented Word of God. Did not David utter in the long ago, the Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His Word was in my tongue? David exclaimed in 2 Samuel 23, 2. Might it be noted again that David did not say his thoughts, his ideas, his conjectures, his theories, his presentations. He said his word is in my tongue. What David uttered and proclaimed was identically and absolutely God's word. The prophet Jeremiah, such a dramatic example of boldness on the part of God himself, God, in the opening chapter, the opening stanza, if you please, of that book, said, Whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. That which is spoken is word, and thus God presented to Jeremiah the words he wanted him to say. Two verses later, in Jeremiah 1 verse 9, we can appreciate again not only the nature of that word that God had provided, 
the word that he had spoken, the word that Jeremiah would proceed to say. He said, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. What did Jeremiah say? God's words. If one appreciates that aspect only, one has appreciated so very much about the nature of what this book presents. But that's only a sampling of many other texts that could be listed. I suspect that your mind may already have raced those famous words of Paul to Timothy, the closing two verses of 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The inspired apostle thus affirmed that all Scripture... That includes both Old and New Testament scriptural presentations are literally inspired of God. Theonustos, God breathed. But perhaps Peter's affirmation should be joined along with that one in 2 Peter 1 verses 20 and 21, knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We have often noted the superintending beauty and also the superintending power of the Holy Spirit's effective influence toward the proclamation of the Scriptures. So it is when we look upon the Bible, we do not see the words of men, we see the words of God. As we hear those words, it's interesting. Since God is a God of truth, Deuteronomy 32, 4, it would be expected then that what is God's word would be truth, period. Here is where we reach one of those areas where there's a dividing point in the roadway. That first category that we had noted earlier, that one where some look upon the Bible as partially myth, partially fable, and perhaps there's some truth in it. There are those who make a distinction between some of the spiritual aspects of the Bible and some of the more physical aspects. And they cling tightly to some of those spiritual aspects. They enjoy the thought of a heaven because they want to be there. But they don't have any real interest in daily godly living or the scriptural teaching of baptism or the fact that one can't just divorce and remarry for any reason at all. Those kinds of subjects are not their favorites. Isn't it interesting that as they try to pick and choose sometimes, they often have little interest in all of the truth of the Bible. They're only interested in parts of it, the parts that are comfortable, the parts that seem to match the lifestyle that they want to lead. But may I help us see at least quickly that the Bible does not only contain spiritual truth. Every truth in the Bible is truth. That also includes the physical aspects. I thought I'd list just one example to illustrate what I mean by that. I believe we could each agree that the fifth chapter of Daniel would present what one could call a physical truth. In the opening verse of that chapter, record is made in the Holy Scriptures of a man whose name was Belshazzar. Now, that would directly mean to you and me that at some point in the distant past, there was literally a Persian king and his name was Belshazzar, period. Now, you and I would look upon that and as believers in the truth, we would wholeheartedly expect that somewhere in history, a man by that name ruled over Persia and he did so in the lifetime of a man named Daniel. However, there were those 
for centuries who looked upon that and said, that can't be right. Nowhere in any of the secular records of Persia was there any mention of a man named Belshazzar. And thus, there were some who elevated the archaeological discoveries of man in the silence of secular history and say, well, the Bible is wrong. Here is a clear mistake. Their minds were changed, though, and that record has been dropped completely from history in terms of an acclaim ever since the date of 1853. In that year, with the very spade of an archaeologist, discovery was made of an inscription in the very cornerstone of an ancient temple in that part of the world where ancient Persia was. And interestingly enough, in the very inscription was not only mention made of Belshazzar, but also his father, Nabonidus. We know all about both of them. They're each at least indirectly mentioned Belshazzar directly in the Bible. There we find the Bible was vindicated, not as though it ever truly needed it, for the Bible was right all along. But it doesn't it help us see that that physical truth, the existence of that man, was right all along. Man was the one that was in error to ever call the scriptures into, into question, to ever doubt the truthfulness of it. So that would lead me to say that any statement made in the scriptures, when properly interpreted, would present the truth of God on that subject be it a subject of spiritual reality like heaven or the plan of salvation, or be it a scientific truth like the law of gravity or the laws of thermodynamics or subjects of oceanography or perhaps records of biology. In this series of studies, we will touch all of them for the Bible touches them. And what we will find all along is that though science may not have learned these things until recent days, God stored them in his word millennia ago. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't that an encouragement to our appreciation for the fact that God wrote this book? It was not man in any sense of the word. That idea perhaps leads me to say that it's true the Bible is not a science textbook. One wouldn't expect to master in thermodynamics using only the Bible as the guide. But any statement that touches that subject in this book is true, and it is accurate, and it is right. That helps us see, then, that we're starting from a position of using God's book as our guide. But having looked at the Bible, let us turn and briefly discuss what's the role of science in all of this, and where does that naturally lead us? The word science comes from the Latin word scientia. And that word simply means to have knowledge of or to know, K-N-O-W. Thus, the whole idea of science is to investigate in such a way as to come to know something, the appreciation of the processes of the natural world around us. That idea is, of course, a noble endeavor. And we have noted already tonight how many conveniences in life we are the beneficiaries of because of the findings of science. It's entirely fair to appreciate that there is much experimentation, there is much observation and measurement of various realities, and then the data is collected, conclusions hopefully correctly are drawn, and that can be used to invent something or to present an idea or to be used to build some device that will benefit the human family. That's one of the basic aspects and hopes, of course, of science. 
I would ask you, though, to notice that the key idea regarding science is that third statement on that slide. Science is built around and based upon the notion of experimentation and observation. Something needs to be observed, data needs to be collected, and from that, conclusions are drawn. That directly means that there are certain things with which science cannot deal. There are certain realities with which science has nothing to say because science can't experiment with it. Science can perform nothing by which it can draw conclusions about it. It will be important for us to note that, not only in this opening lesson, but even some of those that follow. I mentioned those conveniences. It's still true that, by and large, science is highly respected, isn't it, in our society? We greatly appreciate, say, the funding that the federal government makes toward applied science and the benefit that the human family might enjoy from it. Think about all the conveniences in a modern way that we enjoy. Some of the chores in life that might be so drudge-oriented are somewhat taken from us. Washing clothes now, we simply put them in a washing machine and let that take care of it. There's no more scrub boards. There's no more usages, perhaps like you and I have witnessed with our parents or grandparents. The cooking of food is no longer over an open fire out in the yard. Now we turn on a stove, we put an item in the oven, and an hour or so later at most, we enjoy a nice warm meal. Science has been critical in the development of all of those ideas. It's certainly not to say that we shouldn't appreciate science, but often science has gone astray, hasn't it? Its motives, its incentives, the end desires of it can often be far removed from what they ought to be. And in part, that often develops from the basic presupposition on which it's based. Notice, we did say that science presupposes experimentation. It presupposes measurement and observation. What then would science say about something about which it can't experiment? Can science perform an experiment about heaven? Can it perform an experiment about the plan of salvation? Can it perform an experiment about the origin of the universe? It can't. The origin of this universe was a one-time event. It can't be repeated. We can't go back and change something and see how that might alter what came about from it. It happened one time, just as surely as did the origin of man. Here is where we see a problem. Science may thus testify it happened in one way. The Bible would testify, of course, strongly that it happened differently. And therein is this controversy that so often has raised its ugly head in our society. And often our children are punished because of it. They are presented as fact things which are not fact. They simply aren't. The point about all of that may then challenge us to appreciate interestingly that there are many specialized areas in science. We could name a whole host of them. And our students are often encouraged to learn various things about them. And it's a tragedy that often what they're taught as fact is clouded with these theories at best, which truly give the credit to some other monstrosity besides the handiwork of the one who made it all. It's a tragedy, really. The thought that such things as we will learn in this series came about by some other way other than God stretches the human mind. 
it is truly an astounding thing to consider. I would stay all of that to say this. We appreciate with what science has accomplished that there is a truth, the truth in this book. How are they to be harmonized? What approach is to be taken to see the rightfulness of each arena? I would submit to you that that raging debate that exists between these two is a debate that really has no need to be there at all. In the sense that you and I will see as that which is supreme the truth, of course, of God's book. There is a most notable example of that debate. It's, of course, general evolution on the one hand. This idea that somehow everything came about by basically the myriad random changes that take place in nature, that there was no superintending hand overneath it all, that idea is utterly tragic. When one appreciates that that is taught as opposed to, let's say, the beauty of the creation as seen in the opening chapters of Genesis. As that debate is presented, though, that's only one example. Underneath is this difference in presupposition. Those who would see the beauty in God's book would say, the great handiwork of an almighty, awesome God is behind so much. On the other hand, the scientist says, no, the explanation must rest in nothing any higher than the human being himself. We see there is this tendency to presuppose then nothing higher than mankind. He is the zenith of everything that is. All of evolution leads toward his development. One must preclude any extra type of idea then at all. Notice, if it can't be experimented upon, it falls outside directly the purview of science. Can one experiment then with miracles? Can one experiment with the creation as set forth in the opening chapters of Genesis? Of course not. For that was God and he acted outside the laws of nature in those ways. And hence, science can't experiment with it. And hence, science says we have no interest in it. That can't be the way it was. Do we see the way science has attempted to exclude God from the outset? Many of our textbooks in school that our children are forced to read thus exclude God from the outset. It's not that children are asked to fairly consider all sides of the question and make up for themselves their own minds. There have been those who have attempted to say that it can't be that way with God anyway, and so let's not present it to them. That sadness is only seen further when we know what then must be the correct approach. The correct approach is to appreciate that this book is absolutely correct in every presentation, be it spiritual truth or be it physical ones. And when that idea is first and foremost appreciated, that which is based upon it and pursued with it in knowledge can then proceed in a correct way to find those beautiful discoveries in the natural world, to see the handiwork of God amongst the things that we appreciate, and to use that handiwork to benefit the human family in ways that would follow the wonderful dictates of the truth recognized in the Bible. I'd like you to consider some passages, in fact, that teach that very idea. And it's such a wholesome idea to see them presented. Lucas read one of them for us earlier. In the opening chapter of the book of Proverbs, might we remember, it says there, the fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of knowledge. Remember, science comes from scientia, which means to know. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Young person, and even us who are older alike, the foundation based upon the reality of God and the truth that this book is His Word is the absolute starting point for knowledge. To deviate from that fact will lead one down roadways and pathways that lead nowhere good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Might I point out then that scientists who strive to take a different approach, scientists who strive to build a knowledge base and ideas and conceptual frameworks apart from the truth of this, word, of this book are building a superstructure with no foundation. It is not founded upon anything that is the beginning. Notice again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The approach then would be for us to first and foremost understand the thorough validity of this book. Every scientific pursuit then that is not in disharmony to it would be a noble endeavor, no doubt, an appreciation that could be worthwhile and good. But any scientific thought, any scientific presentation that in fact, is in disaccord to this book is a waste of time. It is consuming resources that could be better devoted to other pursuits. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you and I would be wise, it must start with a knowledge of this book. Scientific wisdom alone will make us a fool. Wisdom in the human arena alone will make us a fool. Might we notice two other verses in Proverbs 2 verse 6. We're reminded there yet one more time that knowledge emanates from God. If we try to leave God out of the equation, we don't have knowledge. We have folly. We have foolishness. We have that which is not vital toward the accomplishment and the presentation of the handiwork in this arena of this universe. In Proverbs 22, verse number 12, we see amazingly there yet one more time a similar statement how that knowledge emanates from the great God of heaven. God has given human beings a brain, the capacity to analyze and to think and to rationalize and to come to appreciate. And all of this handiwork in nature should lead us to appreciate Him. Didn't Paul tell the Romans in Romans 1 verse 20, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Those who thus will pull their lab coat together and acclaim themselves as some noble great one who has all the answers of man's beginning and it does not include God. Paul says, I'm telling you, they have no excuse. They, by the nature of what's around them, should know about that there is a God behind this, and they should appreciate His divinity and His greatness, and should acclaim Him with all the nobility within them that that's what He is. In the two verses that follow, Paul went on to say, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. May we thus learn the valiant lesson and try as much as we can to instill that in our children, our grandchildren, despite what those teachers may try to teach you, despite what they may strive to enforce upon you. 
you make your faith based in this book and allow science and its factual truthfulness to be based upon it. And that which is not, do not give great earnestness to it. Learn it enough to answer the questions on their tests, but don't believe it. Don't use that as a guiding thought behind your life. It's a tragedy and sadness when one has to go to that point. But there is a rather powerful verse of warning that I'd like to ask you to consider. It's in the opening verse of Hosea chapter 4. In that first of the minor prophets, we encounter a st stage and a time in ancient Israelite history when God, in fact, says, I have a controversy with the land. God had a problem with something that was happening in ancient Israel. What was it? God said, there's no mercy, there's no truth, there's no knowledge. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and there's no knowledge, it would seem that ancient Israel had lapsed into an appreciation that God is not necessary for knowledge. That one can build up a great superstructure of knowledge without God in the equation. That can't happen. As we've noted, that's mere folly. It's abject foolishness. And thus, those scientists that strive to leave God out of the equation are following the wrong pathway. The sadness and tragedy of all that still leads us to see that we can look upon science in a good way when we approach it rightly. When we allow the dictates of Scripture to guide us in the approach to science. And that, in effect, is one of the last thoughts of our lesson this evening. I've already spoken somewhat about those scientists that we could make mention of. You may have seen them on the newscasts. Those who seem so certain and so bold that certain things happened in certain ways. And you and I, by the knowledge of the Bible, know that they're mistaken. We know that they're not correct. I'd like to read a passage from the ninth chapter of Jeremiah that describes individuals like this. And may I use it in hopes of encouraging all of us to never let ourselves come into that category. You and I, perhaps to lead into that, may have heard of young people who, as long as they were within the friendly confines of dad and mom's house, went to church services. They knew Sunday school lessons about Noah and Abraham and Jonah. They knew somewhat about the Bible, but the time came they graduated high school. Off to college and the university they went. And interestingly enough, when they come home for Christmas, and dad and mom get up and get ready to go to church services, little Johnny says, I don't think I'm going to go today. I've had this psychology class or this sociology class in which we've learned that there's no God We've learned that mechanistic situations can describe fully this universe, and I just don't believe in God anymore. And suddenly a tear comes to Mom's eye when she sees what's happened to little Johnny. He's not that faithful little boy he was when he left for college. You see, he's allowed some university professor or some other person to influence him and to snatch from his life that foundation of faith. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This description in verses 23 and 24 of Jeremiah 9, it seems to me, suits well. Those like these professors that I could be speaking about. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, 
that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. That person with money or a great secular knowledge, God says, if it isn't based upon me, what good is it? If it isn't based upon me, it's not directly positioned and it's not directed properly. Notice again the words of verse 24, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That teacher that doesn't understand and know God and appreciate his word is thus something in which God finds no delight. And in fact, he shall give an answer someday to God for that. May we thus lift up the hands of ourselves and of others, perhaps those teachers who do appreciate the Word and who do strive to inculcate that in the minds of those impressionable youngsters that sit at their feet. The power and might of that leads me to notice also in 1 Corinthians 1. Didn't there the inspired apostle make note that things in the world often have been positioned that way by God to confound the mighty. And God uses things that are to bring to naught other things in this universe. Man, even in his scientific endeavors, I feel confident will never understand all of it, for God is too great, and he is too intricate, and he is too mighty. And sometimes those are the stumbling blocks that cause these professors and even others to stumble. Many an agnostic and many an atheist and many a skeptic have all turned a blind eye to the facts about them. I perhaps would like to close this lesson tonight by returning to at least one positive note. We've seen that science and the Bible can go hand in hand when the Bible is supreme. But that leads us to understand too that to this point there is not a single fact of science that stands in opposition to the Bible. Not one. Not one fact of science. Now, there are many claims of science and many so-called theories of science that oppose the Bible, but not a single fact. There have been many scientists, fortunately, through the ages who have stood firmly on the Bible as the Word of God. And some of their discoveries and some of their work have been critical components to the wonderful world of things about us that we appreciate today. I've chosen to just list the last names of a few of them. Johann Kepler, one of the most famous astronomers of all history, was a devout believer in the truth of God's Word. He, in fact, often would resort to it and use it in his personal reading and study. There's also Robert Boyle, one of the most noted chemists in history. You and I today, at least in medicine, understand the greatness of what chemistry has done for that. Notice the work of Robert Boyle and Blaise Pascal. Some of the most wonderful engineering feats aided to be accomplished by some of the theories of Pascal. After him, I chose two gentlemen in electricity studies, Michael Faraday and James Maxwell, both of whom we have lights to thank for in radio and cell phones, all of them from the initial discoveries of these two men. William Thompson, Isaac Newton, Louis Pasteur, we still, of course, appreciate the pasteurization process, and yet Louis Pasteur, an incredibly strong and devout believer in God's Word, may we today, not to use these men, of course, as being any greater than what they were. They were humans, but they were believers in the Word of God. 
And they use that to aid them and to encourage them in their discoveries in science. They use science correctly. They invo invoked it properly. Today, young person, there are times that I know that you will be persecuted because of what some teacher is going to tell you and what they're going to force you to try to understand and believe. Don't you ever give up on the Word of God. You believe it absolutely for what it is. You take it as the absolute truth and the claims of science with a grain of salt. As long as science is not in disharmony with the Bible, it is a correct thing. And it's entirely right. But when its pursuits oppose God, and it calls into question the truth of this book, science has gone astray. Science is in the wrong. Science in that sense is nothing more, you see, than the attempts of humankind, and that's always short of the truth of God. In the following studies in this series in the Bible and science, I hope that we will be each encouraged to see the handiwork of God in the things about us and to come to realize that that greatness should lead us directly to the throne of God, not apart from it, not in the opposite direction, but directly to Him. In conclusion tonight, looking at this series of studies, I hope that we've been able to see the benefit not only of the Bible, but also of science, and to see that in correctness, the Bible is always right. And science should be then looked upon with a presupposition of God's truth in His book. It's a sadness when that is what's missing. We noted that beautiful verse in Proverbs 1 verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you would be smart and if you would be wise, you must begin with a knowledge of this book. The book in its spiritual way states that there is a heaven and to gain it, one must be a Christian. Are you a Christian tonight? Have you believed Jesus to be the Son of God? Have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed His glorious name as the Son of God? And have you been baptized for the remission of sins? That's what obedience demands. If we could assist you in that, how lovely an occasion it would be. If you, though, have become a Christian but no longer are a faithful one, you have, in fact, become unfaithful for one or more reasons. Come back to that first love tonight. We would, in fact, be overjoyed at being able to assist you in your rededication to the Master. If we could do that, we would urge you to please let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.